What's going on in Tow Wars? We'll talk about that and more with Roto Man. Peter Kreutzer is next on Baseball HQ Radio. Learn to play the winner's way. Because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, March the 24th. It's show number nine of the 2017 Fantasy Baseball season. I am Patrick Davitt, your host, and we have another great Friday show for you. We'll talk with Peter Kreutzer, a Hall of Fame fantasy baseball writer at AskRotoMan.com. He's the editor-in-chief of the annual Fantasy Baseball Guide magazine, and he's the primary organizer of Tout Wars Weekend. We'll talk to him about Tout Wars, about valuing breakouts and career year players, about putting players into value tiers, his studs and duds, and more. We'll have player news from the National League with Harold Nichols, looking at possible shuffles in the Washington batting order, an injury to Martin Prado of the Marlins, and more. And from the American League, it's Ryan Bloomfield, pinch hitting for Jock Thompson, and looking at a possible banger in Tampa, injuries in Cleveland, and much more. We'll also have our commentaries from the expert analysts at BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In the Minor League Minute, analyst Rob Gordon reports on Cincinnati left-hander Amir Garrett. And in Master Notes, I'll be talking about pitchers with pro outcomes. It's another big Friday show. Thanks for joining us at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? It's Tout Wars weekend. We gotta talk some baseball. And in the first inning of this Friday edition, our League Watch News reports, Ryan Bloomfield is on deck with the American League, and leading off, it's the National League report and our old friend Harold Nichols. Nick, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Thank you, Patrick. It's always good to be here, nearing the start of the season. We are uh, just a little more than a couple of weeks away. Let's start down in Miami. The team got some bad news. Third baseman Martin Prado has a grade one hamstring strain and some added discomfort in his right calf, so he's not going to be ready for opening day. Phil Hertz covered this story for playing time today at BaseballHQ.com. What is the prognosis for Martin Prado, and more importantly, what's the prognosis for the Marlins? Well, we hope Prado won't be out too long. It's, uh, you know, we're, we're at this point uh, suggesting maybe a 10% loss in playing time, uh, but certainly will not be ready for the season opener. So uh, the guy who's likely to take his place is Derek Dietrich. And Derek Dietrich was a, a player that we thought a lot highly of a year ago. Uh, looked like he could have a real breakout year and didn't take advantage of the opportunities that he had. He had a couple of t- shots at regular playing time last year, could only get a 245 expected batting average. Uh, 99 expected power index over 351 at bats. So uh, Dietrich is a guy that really could take off at some point. Uh, hasn't uh, shown it yet, but uh, certainly has, I think, some potential in the uh, Miami lineup. And the fact that he's going to get some early time in April uh, may get may make him a reason to be kind of an in-game pick at this point. Dietrich showed a bit of power in 2015, 111 hard contact index and 10 home runs in just uh, 250 at-bats, I believe. Uh, we're projecting him as a $4 player with nine home runs this year in 315 at-bats. I don't know how valuable that is, maybe in deep leagues, but we're leaving Prado at $14 in 445 at-bats, but that value is kind of spread across the board. The biggest asset 
uh, projected batting average around 300. So here's a question, Nick. If you were drafting this weekend, considering the uh, uncertainty around Prado and his uh, injury status, his age, he's no spring chicken at age 33, how would you revalue Martin Prado if you didn't know any more than we know right now? Well, I would certainly uh, I would certainly talk him down a lot at the draft and uh, uh, act like I didn't want him and see if I could get him for around $10 or so. I'd really like Martin Prado. Martin Prado is, uh, I've got a, got an article coming out this week in Sports Weekly about, uh, about a, a neglected veterans, and Martin Prado is certainly one of those. He doesn't fit the traditional mold at third base. He's not going to give you a lot of power, doesn't have a lot of speed. Uh, but does give you a lot of batting average, and he's the kind of guy that if you get a, enough at bats out of him at, at the 300 batting average level, can let you pick up a, a guy who may be a real slugger, hit 40 home runs, but only hit around 250, and not do much damage to your to your bottom line. So I like Martin Prado a lot, and I think this could help uh, make him a real bargain at the draft table. I remember when Martin Prado used to have multiple position eligibility. He played almost every game last year at third base, so he doesn't have that, and he's not likely to recover it either. Uh, I like your analysis about having a a guy with a fair number of at-bats and a 300 batting average. I think you could actually offset a guy at 225 with that kind of uh, performance rather than just 250. I think you could really go digging around in the bottom of the BA BA barrel because uh, Martin Prado's batting average should even everything out uh, because it's so high. He could easily be part of the Mike Zunino plan where you uh, draft Zunino to get your 25 or 30 home runs at catcher, but then have to deal with his 225 batting average. Nick, there was quite a bit of expert buzz this offseason about the potential of St. Louis right-handed starter Luke Weaver. Uh, he de- debuted last season with a bit of a splash, especially a dominance rate of 11 strikeouts per nine innings. That's really getting the job done. Expected ERA as a result was around three and three quarters. It already seemed like Weaver would have been in tough with St. Louis projecting a veteran rotation with Carlos Martinez, Adam Wainwright, Mike Leake, uh, Michael Walker, and Lance Lynn. And then Weaver just sank like the Titanic this spring, four really poor outings, and he was sent down to the minors. Phil Hertz analyzes the Cardinals for BaseballHQ.com. So what happens next for St. Louis and for Luke Weaver? Well, you know, Luke Weaver at this point, as you said, was not really expected to make the rotation. He was kind of a uh, an in-game kind of pick, but was getting some buzz because of that excellent dom rate last season. I really like Luke Weaver. Uh, you know, I think there's some real possibility there. He's one of the Cardinals' top prospects, but clearly has a few things to get straightened out at this point uh, early on. He, he did not pitch well in spring training. Uh, we give him a 5% playing time loss as a result of being sent down. Uh, my guess is he'll be up fairly quickly. Certainly with that rotation that the Cardinals have, somebody's going to get hurt fairly soon. And if Weaver's pitching well, he could easily be one of the early guys uh, back to take that spot. The BaseballHQ.com projection, Nick, is about a $1 value, five wins, that 375 ERA I mentioned earlier, 70 strikeouts in just 73 innings. I think that projection has a lot of upside because, like you say, there's a fairly decent possibility that one of these five starters is going to miss some time this year because they have uh, injury track records at this point. Yes, and I, you know, certainly a lot more upside than downside in that rotation and, and if in that projection. And if you look at, at that at that projection, that ERA is very good, and he will get you some strikeouts. So if he gets a chance, uh, he's probably worth having in, on your on your bench or uh, stashed away in case he gets an opportunity early in the season. 
And, of course, we should say he's a terrific prospect, so if you're in a dynasty or long-term keeper league type situation, this might be the year to grab him. It might be your last chance. Uh, one of the most important calculations, Nick, every owner has to consider in setting up a target list for draft is batting orders of the big league clubs. Very important factor because of the total at-bats and uh, the counting stat possibilities. The powerful Washington Nationals have been showing some indecision about their batting order as we head towards opening day. Greg Pyron covered the story in playing time tomorrow at BaseballHQ.com. Nick, I don't get this. They have Bryce Harper, they got Daniel Murphy, they got Trey Turner, they got Adam Eaton. Is the problem just an embarrassment of riches? It, it almost is. And I think part of the problem at this point is that uh, Dusty Baker is apparently reconsidering where to hit Adam Eaton. Um, Adam Eaton looks like a, a prototypical number two hitter, uh, would work very well in that spot in the lineup. Uh, gets a, a good good stolen base opportunities for Adam Eaton and good speed. Uh, but at this point, there's some question, do you really want to bat Adam Eaton second because you've got uh, Daniel Murphy, who's likely to bat third, and Brian Harper, likely to bat fourth, and you've got three left-handers in a row. So the question becomes, uh, as a manager, do you do something to break up that uh, that trio of left-handers so that uh, later on in the game, a, a relief pitcher can't deal with that so easily? Uh, might put, put Jason Worth into the second spot. Uh, Jason Worth no longer has the kind of speed he once had. Uh 16 stolen bases and 935 at-bats hitting the second spot for Jason Worth, whereas you look at Adam Eaton, he had that many stolen bases last season. So um, if Adam Eaton has moved to the sixth spot, it could certainly affect his his overall production, I would think, in terms of his counting stats. Uh, not as many runs, not as many RBIs, not as many stolen base opportunities. So uh, for Adam Eaton owners uh, or potential owners, it's something to keep an eye on. I think our guess is, and... Uh, um, Greg Pyron's guess is that eventually uh, they'll decide to uh, to put Eaton in the number two spot, which is where he really belongs. But uh, you never know. Managers can make some unusual decisions. This manager in particular can make some <laughs> <Absolutely>. unusual decisions. <laughs> yeah. uh, but you know what, Nick? I don't. I don't think I see the issue. And even Dusty Baker is not going to be so doctrinaire or ideological that he's going to say, "I have to break up this uh, this left, left, left uh, batting order situation." All three of these guys can hit left-handers, first of all. And Eaton, he doesn't have quite the home run punch against left-handers, but his career batting average against left-handed pitching is two eighty-five, and against right-handed, two eighty-four. Is on base against left-handers, which is important in that two-hole, actually higher against left-handers than against right-handers. I'm going to place a bet that Adam Eaton does bat second, and especially when you consider Worth's injury history, I can't see Washington making a, a, a big change like that because it just doesn't seem to be any real benefit. I agree with you, Patrick. I think he'll wind up in the number two spot in the batting order, but it's a good, it's a good nugget of uh, news to use at the draft table once you've got Eaton's name out there. Yeah, spread the news. Hey, did you guys hear Adam Eaton's moving down to six? Maybe you, maybe you steal a dollar somewhere along the way. Uh, Nick, this is the week for our skills columnists at BaseballHQ.com to look at end gamers. Those 21st, 22nd, 23rd round guys, the one to do $2 picks at the end, who could really score this season. Uh, Stephen Nickrand, of course, covers batters in uh, BaseballHQ.com skills columns. And among the National Leaguers on his end gamers list is a name, I have to say, Nick, this caught me a little by surprise. How does Tommy LaStella find any playing time at all now that he's signed with the Cubs? Because I'm going to bet he doesn't replace Chris Bryant. Yeah, he's not going to replace Chris Bryant. So Tommy LaStella is a guy that, you know, you, you wonder about it. But Tommy LaStella has some... Um, Hit very well in the first half, a 291 batting average, a 299 expected batting average. Um, good good pitch recognition. 
uh, some kind of sneaky power, and so very good overall aggregate stats last year. But then as the season got off track uh, due to injuries and a demotion and didn't do so well in the second half, and as you said, no place to play. So Tottenham Estella could wind up being, I think, a very good utility type, although the Cubs already have one in Javier Baez. So, uh, but you can always use a second utility player who could play around the infield, and Tottenham Estella could be that guy. And there certainly is a potential there uh, for putting up some decent decent hitting stats. So he's a guy I'd, I'd keep an eye on in the end game. not a guy I would think I would have to have on my roster. But uh, certainly uh, if you can get him for a buck, he's probably going to be worth that. And maybe just, Nick, I have to say this seems like a long shot to me. Stella's most productive fantasy season was back in 2014, and that was just two bucks, uh, 319 at-bats. He just seems to be typecast as one of those guys who's just not a full-time player. And, and I suppose with uh, considering the depth that the uh, Cubs can bring to bear, if somebody gets hurt, they have better options than Tommy LaStella, even if uh, Tommy LaStella makes the roster. Uh our 2017 projection is basically replacement level around $0 or maybe one at the most and a batting average that at least won't kill you in a deep National League only. Uh, maybe an injury replacement, Nick, but uh, I don't think I'll be betting anything on Tommy LaStella. Yeah, I think I would agree overall on that one. It's uh, He's more likely to be the injury replacement guy. And as, as I mentioned, uh, they've got Baez there to, uh, uh, you know, who, whom a lot of folks think ought to be starting and is probably not going to be. So they've already got that utility guy who's going to play all over the place. And finally, Stephen Nickrand also covers starting pitchers for BaseballHQ.com, and he mentored Robert Gazelman as an end-game possibility. And again, we talked about the rotation in St. Louis having bigger names, which affects uh, that situation. The Mets have bigger names in their rotation, heaven knows, with uh, Noah Syndergaard at all. What is Stephen Nickrand's interest in Robert Gazelman? Well, you know, this guy this guy pitched really well at the end of the season. Six September starts, very strong uh, 9.0 Dom, 2.8 control, a lot of ground balls, 59% ground ball rate, 123 BPV, uh, strong command against both left-handers and right-handers. He looked very good in September. Uh, and, and he's getting, getting a little bit of sleeper buzz, I think, early on in the season. Uh, the kind of guy you could tuck away at the end of a draft, I think, and make some profit on. One of the interesting things about, I think, about, uh, Baseball HQ is that readers can write in and respond to uh, the comments that uh, that our writers make in the articles, and there was such a comment about about uh, about uh, Gaselman. He said the one of the readers wrote in and said this guy's minor league stats have never been as strong as the major league stats he had a year ago. So I think I'm going to stay away from him. I think it was a fluke. Uh, and interestingly enough, uh, Ray Murphy wrote back and said, uh, "Well, but you know, there may be some reason that he was better last year. He picked up some uh, some ticks on it, velocity on his fastball. He changed his slider." Uh, so that it added some break, and there may have been some pitch changes that allowed him to do better than, in fact, he uh, he had been doing earlier in his career. Uh, so uh, I, I like that feature of Baseball HQ, where if you know if you disagree with a writer, you can throw something out there, and someone on the staff is likely to respond back. Uh, if, yeah, I see that, or here's a reason you might want to reconsider what you're thinking. Uh, a very nice feature of I think of the site. Yeah, it is. It, it creates that idea of conversation between the people who work at the site and the people who are subscribers and who read the site. And uh, that that interaction is worth quite a bit because, as you say, people can uh, put in their ideas. And, and I'll tell you, sometimes those ideas affect what, what we think because they're well thought out, as this gentleman's uh, comment was very well thought out. I thought Ray Murphy's response was well thought out as well. But the, the real attraction of BaseballHQ.com for me always has been 
that what we want you to do as a subscriber is not just take what we say and run with it. What we want you to do is take what we say and think about it and use it to adjust your own thinking rather than to replace your own thinking. And I think that's what a lot of our subscribers do. And uh, and I know uh, I'm a Master Notes columnist at BaseballHQ.com. I have been for a while now. And uh, one of the things I really look forward to every Friday after the column comes out, or Saturday, I guess it comes out uh, Friday in the newsletter and Saturday at the site, I really look forward to getting some commentary back from the from the uh, readers and listeners. I put the master notes on Fridays here at Baseball HQ Radio, of course, as well. I really like that feature of BaseballHQ.com as well, Nick. Yeah, I, I do too. I've liked it for a long time. I, as a uh, as a retired university professor, I always want want people to think for themselves, and I think Baseball HQ encourages that instead of just throwing things out there that says here's the way to do it. Uh, encourages you to really think about these players and how they might perform. As the old saying goes, if you uh, buy a man a fish, he'll eat for a day. If you teach a man how to fish, he'll spend all Sunday in a boat drinking beer. There you go. Nick, thanks very much for helping us out. Talk to you again in a week's time. You're very welcome, Patrick. You have a good good weekend and your draft at uh, Tout Wars. Oh, thank you. Yeah, very much excited about that. Uh, always way behind in my planning, but uh, we'll try to catch up uh, here in the next couple of days. Harold Nichols is a pitcher matchups analyst at BaseballHQ.com. He's our man on the National League beat here at the Baseball HQ Radio Podcast. Now let's move to the American League, and with Jock Thompson away from the microphone, it's a pleasure to welcome a familiar Baseball HQ Radio voice, pinch hitting for Jock, coming to us from Oregon, where he's just in from walking his dogs, Baseball HQ Radio playing time commentator Ryan Bloomfield. Ryan, welcome to the show in a different role. Hey PD, glad to be here and uh, pinch hitting for Jock. Let's start in Cleveland, where there's been some news made, and not much of it is any good. Uh, the big story of the week, a shoulder injury to second baseman Jason Kipnis, uh, obviously a very reliable standout for fantasy purposes. Tom Kephart covered this story in Playing Time Today at BaseballHQ.com. What's going on with Jason Kipnis and with the uh, Cleveland playing time situation? Yeah, so in Tom's write-up, it kind of mentioned that uh, Kipnis going to be out for, for most, if not all, of April and his shoulder injury that's that's lingered throughout basically the spring kept pushing him back and back and back and and here we are at this point. Um, so so Tom's piece kind of took the take from from Cleveland side as to what they will do um, during Kipnis's absence and the most kind of logical the easiest I guess replacement would be to throw Eric Gonzalez in there at, at second base. Uh, Gonzalez is a 25 year old without much major league experience, but he's got some you know. Decent numbers last year in AAA, 296, 329, 450 slash line with double-digit homers, double-digit steals. Um, I wouldn't expect too much out of Gonzalez, however, uh, this season. The, the plate skills, at the 4% walk rate, uh, 77% contact rate uh, in the minors last season show that they're probably going to be some growing pains. So um, that might be the easiest, but fantasy owners, you, know, you might want to stay away from that. A far more interesting move that, that Tom kind of mentioned um, could be kind of Cleveland's plan B, which would be to actually move Jose Ramirez from third base um, over to second base. Uh, so that would obviously give Ramirez some more positional flexibility, but also open up some time at 
23rd um, in Cleveland. A couple options that Tom mentioned there, Yandy Diaz, um, who I really like. He's had a great, uh, great spring, 10 for his first 24, getting on base over half the time in that small sample. Diaz was uh, the number 11 prospect in, in our Cleveland org report. Good plate skills, um, should be a good batting average OBP guy, and, and someone who I think um, his numbers could stick initially in the majors. So Yandy Diaz is worth targeting. The other option at third base, should Cleveland decide to move Ramirez over to second in Kipnis's absence, is Giovanni Urshela. Uh, more of a glove first guy with minimal fantasy value. Uh, 606 OPS and a 240 expected batting average um, isn't too impressive to me there. Ryan, it's common for hitters with shoulder issues to lose power, and it's often very slow to come back. So even if Jason Kipnis makes it back relatively quickly, or especially if he comes back relatively quickly, I suppose, how do you think smart fantasy owners should adjust their expectations and valuations at draft tables over the next couple of weekends when most drafts occur? Yeah, I'd be very concerned with kind of Kipnis's outlook for 17. I, I, I kind of mentioned earlier, you know, the lingering nature of this injury. And, and I think that will sap his power. Kipnis actually had shoulder issues in that same exact shoulder the second half of, of 2015. And that totally sapped his, uh, second half numbers there. So, um, if we're talking drafts this weekend, Kipnis has been, you know, his ADP was a, around 100. Um, I think that drops considerably. You're looking at like Dustin Pedroia. Um, I would probably take over Kipnis, uh, who's going about 50 picks later than that. So that, that I, I would probably avoid Kipnis in, in any draft this weekend with the injury uncertainty. And I, I believe he was uh, on the BaseballHQ.com dollar projections. Kipnis was about 24 bucks, 23 bucks, something like that. And I'm sure we're going to see the next time uh, I, I check a playing time adjustment that uh, I wouldn't be surprised if it's under 20 and could be sort of between that 15 to $20 mark. And even at that, Ryan, it seems like it's a pretty problematic um, issue for anybody who wants to bid on uh, Jason Kipnis because – you know, if you bid $16 or $17 because that just accounts for the lost playing time, I don't think you're still making enough of an adjustment for the potential loss of home runs, which is a not a huge part, but a significant part of Jason Kipnis's overall value. Absolutely. Fully agree. Um, he had single-digit homers the two years prior to 2016, and, and I think that comes back. Also in Cleveland, pitcher Cody Anderson will miss the entire season. Tommy John surgery there in his pitching elbow. Tom Kephart, of course, also on top of this story. Anderson was the sixth man in the Cleveland rotation, uh, but given other injury risks in that rotation, and that sixth man could be a useful guy in Cleveland. Now he's gone with Cody Anderson absent. What happens if somebody gets hurt? Yeah, going into the season, I thought the sixth man in, in Cleveland would, would definitely rack up some innings pitch. You've got, you know, PD, you mentioned the, the injury risks in that rotation. Carlos Carrasco, Josh Tomlin, um, both major um, injury risks. So Anderson would have filled that role. With, with Anderson out, Tom mentioned Carlos Frias as, as the most likely kind of um, replacement option, at least initially. Uh, Frias is a guy, you know, not too much upside. He's more of a ground ball specialist who, who split some time in AA and AAA and missed a good chunk of the season last year with an oblique. Uh, got a good history of, of solid control but not too many strikeouts. So like I said, his his major league upside is limited, mostly through um, 
his time with LA, 114 major league innings, just 75 Ks and, uh, just under a 2.0 strikeout to walk rate. So not too much there for Frias, uh, from a fantasy, uh, upside standpoint. Tom Kephart also reported that Mike Clevenger and Ryan Merritt could be rotation options for Cleveland. I remember Merritt from that excellent playoff start he had last year. What are the details on him and Clevenger? They've got a, a fair amount more upside than, than Frias, I think, but I, I don't think either one's going to start the season in the majors. Clevenger's a particularly interesting guy to me. He struggled with his control and his command as a, as a rookie in 2016. He threw 53 innings with Cleveland of a 526 ERA, kind of split some time in the bullpen and the rotation. Um, manager Tanny, Terry Francona wants to develop Clevenger as a starter. He's kind of come out this spring and said that. So Clevenger's most likely going to start down in AAA Columbus. He's got good raw stuff, loaded in 90s fastball, um, and a decent first pitch strike rate in the major leagues last season. So I, I think there's uh, some upside there. I think Clevenger would be kind of the, the sixth man if uh, we get later into the season and, and, and he can get, and Clevenger gets off to a good start in Columbus. Um, as for Merritt, yeah, Petey, you mentioned that, uh, that playoff start last year. Uh, Merritt was, was great in a small sample major league exposure last year, just through 11 relief innings um, in the regular season, but uninspiring um, minor league numbers. His major league equivalents were, were pretty poor with a poor strikeout rate. Doesn't really hit 90 with, with with the fastball. So I think Merritt uh, is a long shot to produce. I'd much rather take a stab at uh, at Clevenger as a midseason um, call-up to Cleveland's rotation. Ryan, in addition to your playing time commentary on the podcast here every week and you do behind-the-scenes work as BaseballHQ.com's director of social media, you also write regularly for the Facts and Flukes column. That's performance validation of selected players. And this week, your analysis included the second-base situation in Chicago where the White Sox just sent down all-world prospect Yoan Moncada. They got him from Boston, of course, in the Chris Sale deal. Well, that seems to leave the job open, but just for Tyler Saladino? Yeah, just for Tyler Saladino. Um, you know, I, I kind of picked Saladino as a, as a, as a topic in my facts and flukes, um, earlier this week. I, I was just intrigued by the 282 batting average, eight homers, 11 steals, and a half season of at bats. Those are pretty good numbers in, in limited action for Saladino last year. But, uh, when I took that kind of deeper dive into the skills, I didn't really see much. I wasn't very impressed by Saladino beneath the surface. Um, his expected batting average was, was pretty poor, doesn't make much hard contact and doesn't, uh, doesn't make enough contact kind of as a slap hitter for me to really believe in uh, a 282 batting average repeat. Um, below average power in, 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 even though he did have those 11 steals, our, our speed score was like 90, um, also below average as well. So I don't see Saladino holding up over the long haul. Um, I, if I'm drafting this weekend or right into opening day, I, I wouldn't expect Saladino to really be Chicago's second base starter through Memorial Day. That'd be kind of the over-under for me as to how long he's in Chicago's lineup. You talked about his speed skill not supporting 11 stolen bases. I've heard from some Baseball HQ Radio listeners and some subscribers in the comment fields and stuff that stolen bases is... An underrated skill thing, like you, you don't have to be fast to steal bases. I remember Mo Vaughn stealing like ten or eleven bases. He was on my roster <laughs> that year, and he, heaven knows he was no Ricky Henderson uh, legs wise. There's a lot of just knowing what you're doing out there when it comes to stealing bases, picking your spots, and getting good jumps and that sort of thing. Could it be that Saladino's one of these guys who can steal bases even though he's not particularly fast? 
Yeah, no, you br- you bring up a great point there. For, I mean, Paul Goldschmidt's a perfect example of that. Someone with kind of a mediocre speed score, but stole thirty bags last year. Um, I don't see that with Saladino though. He even his success rate on the on the base pass was like sixty nine percent. So so not very nice there. I think you need you know kind of low seventies to break even um, these days from a from a value standpoint. So um, I, yeah, I, I still don't believe into that that stolen base upside for Saladino. And that's an excellent point. If a guy is not adding value with stolen bases by getting caught too much, eventually the manager says, just stop. <laughs> just stop running. You're killing us out there. So stay stay anchored to the base and wait for Jose Abreu to hit a home run. Why don't you? Exactly. You mentioned uh, that uh, Saladino's over-under for you is around Memorial Day, the end of May. And the skinny is that Moncada is just too good to leave in the minors. We should expect to see him sometime this year. Are you talking about this move being for uh, a financial thing having to do with arbitration and free agency and all of those dates that you have to wait to maintain control for the extra year? Yeah, that's kind of exactly what I'm referring to with how long I expect Saladino to stay in the lineup. Um, from what I've, I've read and seen um, on the Chicago uh, blogs, it looks like mid-May is kind of Yohan Mon- Moncada's um, deadline for an extra an extra year of team control so um, I see Saladino as a filler as a placeholder until Moncada is ready to come up in kind of mid to late May and uh, obviously with Moncada the, the he was our top prospect on the HQ 100 this season um, a 9A prospect rating which you rarely see um, that basically means for those of you kind of new to um, baseballhq.com's prospect ratings a 9A rating basically means Moncada has a pretty high probability of reaching an all-star level of production at his peak and uh, that's exciting the the long-term um, upside for Moncada is obviously huge he did have some contact issues in 2016 though so there are some holes in his swing that I think major league pitchers uh, will exploit early on and did um, in a small sample for Moncada at the end of 2016 so I wouldn't uh, expect instant success in 2017 but if Moncada's demotion to the minors lowers his value in drafts and you have a farm system or or even obviously he's probably owned in in any farm league but if you have a deeper bench where you can stash Moncada for for six weeks or so and and wait for him and take a stab um, at the upside later on that'd be a prudent move as opposed to investing in Saladino or maybe do both you know buy Saladino for a buck and stash Moncada on your reserve and then replace one with the other you get a bit of a bit of production out of Saladino until Moncada arrives and then uh, so combining those two two guys in the slot could give you some pretty good results. You mentioned contact issues, and that's certainly an issue to watch with Juan Moncada, but he can really hit. I mean, he can really hit, and he can run. So there's a, a good possibility that maybe the batting average won't be all that it should be, and he probably is on base percentage, won't be all that it should be for for leagues that use that particular stat as they should. Uh, but gosh, he could he could hit you a lot of home runs and steal you a lot of bags, and that 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 offsets a lot of batting average flaws. Absolutely, and we kind of tabbed Moncada as a perennial 20 homer, 30 steal guy in the in the minor league baseball analyst this season, and yeah, obviously a testament to the raw tools. Speaking of power down in Tampa, there's talk of a power source in a young man named Jake Bowers. Uh, Chris Olson brought him to our attention in playing time tomorrow at BaseballHQ.com. So who or what is Jake Bowers? 
So Jake Bowers is uh, is an outfielder. He's he was our number three prospect in Tampa's system um, entering 2017, and he and he nailed a spot on our HQ 100 as well as as our number 75 fantasy prospect. Uh, Bowers has been known for his pl- patience and plate skills, and that really led us to give him that that higher prospect ranking. What we haven't seen from Bowers is power, and that's a pun that will probably. Uh, get old very quickly <laughs> um but yeah bowers has four home runs this this spring and, and chris mentioned that as kind of a pleasant surprise that really is is catching tampa's eye um i still think though that that bowers is not going to start he's he's just 21 um tampa is very kind of service time oriented uh we kind of alluded to that with chicago earlier but uh, i i see bowers starting in the minor leagues um tampa has a, a a slew of other options at first base. None of them are are particularly great. Um, Logan Morrison's really the the starter with maybe Ricky Weeks blast from the past there um, in a platoon at first, and and Nick Franklin behind them. So um, I think Bowers won't start um, immediately within the majors, but uh, certainly a guy who I think could be called up midseason if he continues to hit in the minors and and Tampa's first base options struggle as I as I expect them to. Do you think Nick Franklin could be something of a sleeper? It seems every year nobody likes Nick Franklin, but he actually has pretty good power and he actually has pretty good speed. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, I actually wrote up Nick Franklin in the in the baseball forecaster this season. I, I kind of when I looked at the skills, I kind of did a double take. He's had triple digit uh, PX or power index um, and, and triple digit speed. So both power and speed are above average each of the last two seasons. And I kind of pegged 15-15 home run and steal upside on Franklin, even in part time duty. Um, Stephen Nickran mentioned Nick Franklin um, on the site um, this past Wednesday in a, in a batter's buyer's guide column. Um, as an end gamer. And I think he's kind of the guy for speculating at first base options in Tampa Bay. He has much more upside than, than Logan Morrison or, or Ricky Weeks, even if he may not start the season as their, uh, as their starter. A lot of times people will look at the uh, list of available players and they say, yeah, Logan Morrison, good, reliable guy. But I, I think if you're investing a dollar or three or whatever it's going to cost you to get Logan Morrison in your league, if you want him at all, I suppose, in mixed leagues, the issue is, yeah, there's a certain uh, reliable floor, but there's very little ceiling. I mean, it's uh, it's a narrow range of expectations, and you're you're getting a name you know and a name you trust, and I guess there's some uh, psychological value in that. But man, when you get down to those one dollar, two dollar, twenty first plus round picks, I think you really got to look at guys like Nick Franklin because uh, the upside is so much better, and the downside is not that much worse. Exactly, you're spot on, PD. And the other kind of big takeaway I would I would recommend here is that don't just go off of opening day depth charts. It's a marathon. It's not a sprint. Go for the skills. The guys with the skills are are more likely to bubble up and get that playing time. And if they don't start on on opening day, that might even lead to a bigger discount um, at your draft or auction. Finally, Ryan, some of us, especially those who play American League-only formats, have been waiting a while for Nathan Carnes to arrive as a quality starting pitcher. I've had him on my roster a couple of times, been disappointed a couple of times. He's been dropped by two teams in the last couple of years. Seattle dropped him, and so did Tampa. And Tampa's a pretty good uh, judge of starting pitching prospects, and they threw him away uh, a couple of years ago. Uh, 
I don't, I don't know about Carnes. He's now in Kansas City. They've signed him into the rotation. Um, Matt Dodge covered this story for Playing Time today. So is the third time or the third team the charm for Nathan Carnes? I don't think so. Um, you know, I, I wouldn't read too much into the news that Carnes won the won the rotation job. That was kind of expected, given that uh, the Royals traded away Gerard Dyson to acquire Carnes' services. I, I caught a lot of Carnes up here in the Northwest. Uh, you, know, you mentioned he was with Seattle last season. Really struggled a 5.15 ERA, and then a uh, a back injury in July kind of ended his season prematurely. So I I do kind of wonder how much that that affected Carnes's. Um, Carnes' numbers in 2015, a little bit more willing to give him a pass, or 2016, sorry, I'm, I'm a little more willing to give Carnes a pass given that he did show better skills in 2014 and 2015. He's got some swing and miss to his uh, game. He's got a career strikeouts per nine or dominance rate of 9.2, which is very good. That's a strikeout per inning. Um, you know, he's leaving Safeco, but Kauffman Stadium's a very good pitching park. He's got a good defense behind him. So that's the, that's the kind of positives in, in Karn's outlook. However, control's been a big issue for him and he doesn't induce many ground balls. So, um, there's, you know, I think mid rotation is kind of the best case, uh, for Karn's. We're projecting him for a 442 ERA, which kind of makes him AL only flyer material, in my opinion. My friend Gene McCaffrey says that there's, not necessarily a bad thing if a pitcher is a high fly ball uh, type pitcher, especially if he plays in a big yard with good defense like Nathan Carnes. What do you think of that? Uh, I know we like ground balls, but isn't there room for a fly ball heavy guy in the right situation? Yeah, fly ballers can certainly uh, um, have a lot of value. Obviously, yes, it opens up home run risk, but uh, but fly balls have a much lower percentage of, of turning into hits if they stay in the yard. So if you're in the right situation in a good park like Carnes is with a good uh, speedy outfield defense, uh, a fly ball pitcher can work. So let's suppose Nathan Carnes uh, once again doesn't cut the mustard. What does Kansas City do to fill his rotation slot? Yeah, there's not too much behind Carnes in Kansas City. Um You've got, you know, Matt Dodge kind of alluded to this. You've got Chris Young and Travis Wood probably next in line. Neither one, in my opinion, is really worth much fantasy consideration. Um, Chris Young is one of those extreme fly ball guys. He had like a 60% fly ball rate um, in 2014 and 2015, and his ERA was actually really low. He outpitched his peripherals in those two seasons, but uh, but that luck kind of ran out in 2016 um, with a, a few years of a 5.0 play plus expected ERA at 38 years old. Chris Young's not really an option for me. Um, you know, Travis Wood on the surface kind of thrived in the bullpen for KC last year, 295 ERA, but the skills weren't there. I think that was kind of fluky if Kansas City even decides to uh, to move Wood back to the rotation if they need a slot there. So um, there's not too much in Kansas City uh, behind the top five. So Royals fans should be uh, crossing their fingers for some health from their rotation. And more importantly, fantasy owners should be looking elsewhere as well. Uh, Ryan, thanks very much for helping us out. I do appreciate it. Uh, We'd be looking forward to your playing time commentaries all season here at Baseball HQ Radio and your facts and flukes coverage at the site. Thanks again for joining us, and we'll talk to you soon. Absolutely, PD. Have fun at Tout. Ryan Bloomfield is a player analyst at BaseballHQ.com and the site's director of social media. Ryan also has his playing time commentary here on Baseball HQ Radio every week. We'll take a quick break here, then we'll be back with Roto Man. Peter Kreutzer is next on Baseball HQ Radio. 
Hi, this is Rob Gordon, minor league analyst for BaseballHQ.com, and I just wanted to take a minute to tell you about the 2017 edition of the Minor League Baseball Analyst, our annual guide to the prospects and trends that will help you win your fantasy leagues. The Minor League Baseball Analyst has scouted more than a thousand prospects using Baseball HQ's exclusive player potential rating systems, sabermetric analysis, performance trends, and Major League equivalencies from the past five seasons, and there's lots more as well. Order your Minor League Baseball Analyst today for just $19.95 plus shipping and handling, and if you order directly from BaseballHQ.com slash MLBA17 and enter the promo code MINERS at checkout, you get $5 off your order. Plus, you also get a PDF copy of the book. And if that isn't enough, you get online updates for all 30 organizational lists and our top 50 fantasy prospects. Today's winning fantasy baseball players get on top and stay on top by knowing which prospects are the wannabes, the maybes, and the gunnabes. Go to the top. Go to BaseballHQ.com MLBA17 and order your minor league baseball analyst today. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Now it's time for our feature expert interview, and it's my pleasure to be joined by Peter Kreutzer, a Hall of Fame fantasy baseball writer at AskRotoman.com. He's the editor-in-chief of the annual Fantasy Baseball Guide magazine, and he's the primary organizer of Tout Wars Weekend. Peter Kreutzer, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Hi there, Patrick. It's an exciting time for you. Tout Wars starts tonight. Uh, I know you're in the draft, but before we get talking about the draft that you're in, let's talk about Tout Wars in general. Everything is all set up. We have a new venue. We do have a new venue. We um, we are in a um, a great, brand, pretty brand new bar and restaurant called Brock and Riley's, um, which is in Thirty uh, Fifth Street and Seventh Avenue. Thirty Fifth Street, just west of Seventh Avenue, and in, in uh, beautiful Manhattan. And um, they're hosting us in the, in their uh, fantastic side room, which has a. Uh, a retractable roof. I'm hoping, you know, if the weather gets nice, maybe we'll uh, we'll open the open the roof and um, see how these guys can can draft outdoors. But um, in any case, it's a great place, and and the public is invited to come by tonight, Saturday and Sunday. We'll be uh, we'll be drafting, um, and uh, uh, we're all really excited about it. So, with the roof open, is there more home runs? I think we, you know, we haven't. We have to see how it plays, um, but that's the expectation. Uh, do you have any new uh, formats for this year's event? No, we're pretty pretty much the same as last year. We've uh, simplified the head-to-head league rules, um, gotten rid of the net um, steals and saves, and uh, and um, got rid of the roto scoring for head-to-head, and just are going straight head-to-head. Um, for the whole season, each team plays each other team uh, twice, each of the other 11 teams twice. Uh, it, it's uh, it's going to make it easier for people to follow it and see what's what's happening. Right. I remember last year when uh, when you guys announced the league, there was it was like a a double scoring format. There was a head to head part, and then there was an overall roto scoring part, and then there was a formula of some kind to figure out how the whole thing worked out in the end. And now you've gone back to the simpler method. Uh, a year or two ago, Peter, the Tout Wars board announced the idea of an X league with uh, unusual formats. You had the hybrid roto head to head that I just mentioned. You also used a Ron Chandler's monthly game for one of those years. No new game this year? No. Um, you know, we started the head-to-head last year under the, the rubric of um, Tout X, 
but um, and then that, some of the experimental things that we tried last year were to you know further that goal, the, the experimental goal. But what everybody who play, was playing in the league was telling us is it's really hard to commit to playing in a format where you don't know the rules, where you don't know the setup. You can't really write about it in your um, job as a, as a fantasy writer, for the most part, because nobody else is playing that, that game. So it was, it's not that it was hard to get people to play, but it was hard to get them to be enthusiastic about playing um, in, in like the changing format. Um, and the fact is that head-to-head is the most popular format among people um, playing it in ESPN for sure. And I, I think in the world as a whole, it's generally considered to be the most popular format. Um, and we're better off um, doing something that's a little more traditional than, than crazy each year. Yeah, I wondered sometimes, I remember we've had discussions in the past, I've talked with Todd Zola, a member of the Tout Board as well, about the adjustments that could be made to various formats, and I thought maybe it would swing more towards using the more or less standard overall formats, but tweak the rules as to the categories and, and those kind of things. But again, you run into the same problem. It's not a lot of fun and not a lot of use to you as a, as a, a fantasy baseball writer or analyst to be involved in a league that nobody else is playing. Right. I think our hope is eventually to um, to have a have an experimental league where we do some of those things and invite the people who are already in Tower Wars playing in the other formats to join that league if they're interested. Um, I, there's a lot of interest in that. It's just a lot of work, and um, we have a lot on our plate and haven't gotten to it. But I think in the future we'll do we'll add something like that. Um, for the time being, we have Doubt Wars, which is the game where everybody gets to play against the Touts by drafting, um, by putting together their own rosters after the Tout AL and NL and mixed drafts for one dollar more than the Touts themselves paid. And um, it's a draft and hold league, so you set your team up before the season starts. And you know we have we announce winners at the end of the season, and we get a chance to see who the public, the people who follow Tout Wars, who they thought got the best bargains um, in the in the auctions, which is a good fun thing to uh, alternate way to look at at the way um, fantasy baseball is played. Oftentimes, the the person who wins the Tout Wars ends up with a really fantastic scoring total. I'm really impressed with the level of skill of some of these Doubt Wars drafters. We had a, a guy last year won both the NL and the mixed leagues. Um, he beat more than 30 other teams in the plus all the all the touts themselves who pay $23 less than the the public players and um, and he and he beat more than 50 other teams in the mixed league, which is I, I think a pretty amazing accomplishment. As for you, you uh, used to play in the National League Tout Wars. You've moved to the Tout Head-to-Head League. Uh, before I ask you about how you're planning for that, why did you make the move from the uh, National League uh, single league format to head-to-head? Well, it was. Um, I, I was. I, I still feel badly about leaving the National League. It's a great group of guys. We've had um, great, exciting play. But I was involved in starting um, the head-to-head league and coming up with some of the experimental rules that we used last year, some of the some of the things we tried out, and I felt kind of obligated and kind of interested in playing last year, trying it out. I'd never played in a head-to-head league. I, I you know, knew the concepts. I'd been talking about it for years, but I'd never actually played in a in a high-level head-to-head league, and um, so I was interested in that, and it was so much fun it was um it's a great format for um 
talking to your opponent, for you know, doing some ribbing, some psyching out. It's also um, requires a lot of week to week thought about category ma- management that um, you don't really have in a regular rotisserie league. And so I thought I would play it again this year. I um, will probably go back to the NL at some point, but um, but for the time being, I like playing in the in the head to head league, and that's why I'm there. You said something interesting about head-to-head that that really appeals to me as well. Of course, in most leagues nowadays with reserve lists, uh, a lot of owners calculate that they need to have certain positions covered, especially starting pitchers, to stream them in and out depending on who the pitcher's playing in the major leagues. But in the head-to-head format, you can also look at who your opponent has on his roster and try to tailor your roster to counter him or to surrender a thing that you know you can't win in order to be stronger somewhere else. So there's that whole element of streaming your players not so much on who they're playing in the big leagues, but who you're playing in the head-to-head league. Exactly. The um, your goal in, in this in our format is to win three hitting categories and three pitching categories, and so you're basically. I mean, the, you're basically dumping out of two categories in the draft if you can, um, in each of those. And but you want to. Everybody else is doing the same thing, so you want to pick the ones that are um, the least contested, and that's a great challenge because obviously it's easy to dump steals, it's easy to dump saves, um, but that doesn't—that's not going to give you an advantage because everybody's thinking that way. Um, and and then, however way, whichever way you go during the draft, when you, the season starts, you then are contesting other teams that may have dumped out of categories that you can take easily if you set your team up correctly for that week. And in a shallow 12-team mixed league format, there are guys on the waiver wire who can you can transform your team from week to week by picking up free agents. That's I mean that's the fun of it. That is a, it's a gr- great format for keeping lively and on your toes from week to week. And I suppose there's a bit of cat and mouse going on too because while you're making the adjustments to your roster, your opponent's doing likewise and you might go into the free agent pool and and try to grab a saves guy that happens to be available because you know your opponent has no saves guy, only it turns out he's in there grabbing the same saves guy you are and he's turned the tables on you and then you have to calculate would he do that, has he done that, what's his what's his past practice. There's a lot of that kind of gamesmanship that goes on that, that's a, a level above what goes on, as I said, when you're in a normal league, just streaming guys in and out based on their major league uh, situation for the week. Exactly. That, and that is, the, that is the fun of it and the challenge of it. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Peter Kreutzer from AskRotoman.com and PattonandCo.com and, uh, of course, the manager of uh, Tout Wars again this year. And, Peter, at your AskRotoman.com site, you have some terrific questions that people send in to you and you answer them uh, in some depth, a very impressive level of depth and, and uh, analysis. You had a letter recently from a new owner in a 6 by 6 keeper league, speaking of unusual formats, and he wanted your advice about whether to keep or extend DJ LeMahieu. He has LeMahieu at a dollar, which of course is fantastic value, but his question was, does he play him out at the dollar salary just for this year or extend him two years for $6 a season, three years for $11 a season, four years for 16 and so on. We know LeMahieu was a $30 player last year. He's a $30 projected player at BaseballHQ.com this year. What advice do you give an owner in this situation? Well, the key the key detail that you left out is that this is a mixed league, so it wasn't um, a twelve team mixed league. So he isn't a thirty dollar player in that in 
this format. But he is still a valuable player. He had two. He's had two great seasons. Um, and it, although it's hard to price um, guys, he in the in the twelve team mixed league because it's not at all a linear um, formula to, to do so. Um, a guy who is the batting, you know, has a high batting average and and is productive because he plays all the time is has real value. Um, last year in Tout Mixed, after his first great year, he somebody paid ten dollars for him, um, and that's a fifteen team league. His price is a little bit lower than the ten dollars in a twelve team league, but now he's had two great years. So I say for sure he's going to go somewhere in the teens in this year's mixed league auction um and that's you know that's a fair guess so the question is really if he's going to go for 15 or 17 this year um are you willing to bet 11 for each of the next for this year next year and the year after that um given the type of production he produces and and that's really the question that i tried to answer and i think my my opinion is going eleven dollars for those three years is valuing valuing him on his peak seasons, and he's really you know probably going to end up being more like a ten eleven dollar player, um, and you're better off keeping him for a year where he's a great bargain, or for two years where he is probably going to be a positive earner. Um, and the big difference there is whether you're in the fight for the championship this year, in which case you want the big bargain this year, or if you are going to try and be in it this year, but also have a shot at it next year, in which case you might want to keep the bargain for two years. That's a question that is very team and league specific. Um, there's no way to answer that. But I think it's fair to say in that sort of league, $11 for three years is, is um, basically bidding him into par on, as a keeper, and that's not something you want to do. I'm curious why the uh, why you say he's a thirty dollar player in normal formats, but in in such a shallow mixed league that his value drops so precipitously. I mean, at ignoring the the actual dollar values and format, DJ LeMay, who's probably a top twenty ish, top eighteen ish type of player in, in just in terms of the stats he's likely to generate, and that includes the on base, which I think was part of this guy's league. Uh, why is it that in a normal league he's twenty five to thirty, and in this sort of league he he only values out at eleven? Um, you're saying he's a top twenty player or a top twenty hitter in in uh, a top twenty hitter, yeah. NL in an NL league? No, in a, in a mixed. I I ran the uh, custom draft guide at baseballhq.com, which allows you to to format various types of leagues and in various types of setups, and he still comes out. Like in, in, towards the top of the list around Manny Machado, Trey Turner area. Well, um, so I have LeMahieu as more like the the fortieth best hitter in a mixed league, um, which is significantly different than what you're um, suggesting there. Uh, that's obviously, uh, you know, there are differences of opinion, but I, I think he's not, um, you know, he's not a, a big power guy. He's not a big speed guy. Um, the, the batting average is is great. He gets on base a fair amount, but um, he's in the middle ranks of guys. And in a mixed league, those are exactly the sorts of guys that you don't want to overvalue. The batting average can, you know, with some bad luck, can can plummet. The um, you really need to get from power and speed from your top guys and um, get real production. And uh, that I think makes Lemayhu a valuable but not somebody that you you want to go crazy about or or um bid up aggressively 
when I used to play in in uh, keeper leagues, I created something I called production value to that I could use on a spreadsheet pretty easily. And what it was was the player's projected value plus whatever discount value he had by being underpriced, undersalaried because of his keeper status. I assumed a 10% value decline in each season, and then I just summed summed it up. And you can find an optimal point where the value plus the uh, the value and the bargain combined to be optimized before the curve starts bending back down because of the constant increase in the, in the level of salary. Um, what do you think of starting the, should I keep him, should I not, and at what price with a straightforward formula of this kind? Well, that, that's kind of what I do. Um, I mean, I, I, when I take a look at what he went for in tout last year, that gives me a baseline of what, um, he's not, he's definitely not going to be less than that. He's going to be more, um, and how much more is uh, hard to say because of for the various things we've talked about. Um, but you have to start someplace, and to say that he's a 15 to $17 player this coming year and uh, coming off a of peak season means that he's not a huge value at 11, he's not a huge bargain at $11. And so that, it's working through that, that idea that, um, that I, I come to a conclusion. You can make it completely mechanical, plug in, uh, you know, projections, projected value, projected war from zips or something, and and then um, and then work backwards to get, uh, you know, a, a solid uh, estimation of what his future value is going to be. Um, there's a lot of moving parts in that, and I, I, at some point, I think you end up having doing more work than you need to do to come to come to a, a rational conclusion. So. Um, I, but I, it, just eyeballing it isn't the way to go. You really want to set some objective guidelines to, for how to value players going into the future. You mentioned that uh, LeMahieu had a pretty good breakout year in 2015. He was uh, something of a surprise with those 23 home runs. I think his batting average was uh, up over 300 for the first time, and then he kind of built on it last year. And so I wonder what you think about the repeatability of, of a good year, especially by a player like LeMahieu who was – he was okay, and then all of a sudden he became really, really good. How do we manage expectations for players who are coming off these big growth years and especially off career years? Well, I, I think you have to build in a lot of you know what is every, what is, regression to the mean that that just because somebody had a big year doesn't necessarily mean they're going to have a bad year. But the whole idea of the sophomore slump is that people who have great rookie seasons don't have a lot of projective upside usually. They're, they're going to come back to where their real talent level is in some way. And big years are almost always expressions of a combination of a player's um, a, a hot streak, a player um, coming into their own in terms of their physical abilities and their mental acuity. But then there's also, and then there's also things like uh, Bab- Babip Luck and, and the, the hitting them where they ain't and maybe um, batting order issues that come into play for that season. There's a lot of indiv- a lot of freakish things that lead to big years, to, to outstanding good years. And so players usually come back to a lower level of, um, of uh, performance in the following year. And one of the things that was priced into LeMahieu last year, which may have led to the $10, was he was expected to come back last year. Now that he's done it two years in a row, People, in in one way or another, people are going to say, well, that's maybe his real true talent level. I don't think it's all the way there. I think he's had two really good years in a row, 
and um, he's going to come back to a little bit uh, over the next year or two. Peter, does that apply to skills metrics like walk rate and, and strikeout rate or contact rate, whichever side of it you prefer to look at, and, and those sort of things? Or is it more the outcomes, the stolen bases and home runs? Because uh, his walk rate jumped from 8 to 11%, from 15 to 16 His contact rate from 81 to 86%. Uh, we have a metric at Baseball HQ called Hard Contact Index. How often does he hit the ball hard? He was 22% above league average. All of these kind of things look like skills. They look like skills growth. And he was 26 and 27% the last two years in line drive rate. All of these things seem to suggest that he found some new skill level. And just how trustworthy do you think that is? And how do you balance a new skill level against a, uh, a new production level? Well, it, it, this is the challenge, obviously. The um, big thing for me is that those numbers jump around and they, go, they tend to go in the right direction when a player has a great year. So you hit the ball, hit the ball harder, your line drive rate goes up, you're, and you're going to get more hits. And that looks that looks great. That looks like a skill, but it it can drop a couple of points the next year and still be the same skill. I don't think we have enough contact data over a long enough period of players' careers to accurately judge how much it it fluctuates from year to year. The the sources for the data are have been inconsistent, and so we're we're right now we're extrapolating from a lot of data that has a lot of noise attached to it. Um, it's great to be able to look at this. It tells us more about what's happening, but we can still see that the numbers jump from year, up and down from year to year. They're not um, totally consistent. And um, we don't know over the arc of a player's career whether somebody like LeMay, who, who, who was middling, had a good year, and then the next year bumped his numbers up more. Is that really something that is you can judge to be a trend, or is it something that is, he's going to regress? Um, I think the uh, the safe side of it is to um, to call it a, to expect that he's going to regress some, um, and I say that with the full confidence that I could very likely be wrong. I'm interested in that, Peter. How long of a career do you think a guy has to have before you start trusting his baseline skills? I mean, guys like Mike Trout have really good skills year after year, and they tend to get slightly better over time. At some point, are you willing to say, "Yeah, he owns this"? I am willing to say that. When a 21-year-old or a 22-year-old comes up and has a, a couple of good years, that absolutely they own it. When a player, you know, develops and evolves in, in the middle of his career, um, I'm willing to say that LeMahieu is a better player than um, I, I expected, and a lot of people expected him to be three years ago. Um, is he as good as he was last year? Um, going forward, that's where I I think. We have to expect he's, his growth curve is. We have to assume it's at, it's at the top, and that he can only come back to earth from here. Whether it happens this year or next year, um, is where we're going to have it. We can talk all day, and not um, the, the evidence. There's evidence to support both, and um, so we have, we just take a side on that. I would be careful about him just because he's not. Um, He's not a difference maker in terms of a team. He's a good guy to have on your team, but he's somebody you want to roster later rather than earlier. In general, when you were making a keeper decision, would you afford a pitcher less latitude as far as an extra year extension, or would you not let it matter? Well, 
um, I'm not going to extend Brett Anderson or Brandon McCarthy. I'll tell you that. <laughs> but the fact is that um, pitcher prices are have injury risk factored into the actual prices. We pay less for pitchers than they earn when they stay healthy because there's such a great risk that they're going to suffer a catastrophic injury and either be terribly ineffective or totally gone. Um, so I would I would follow the same rules using the regular pricing methods that you use for your league. Pitchers um, who stay healthy are going to be productive for you the way they always have been, and um, good prices are going to reflect that and, and make them, you can judge them the same way that you do hitters. Not that this has anything to do with DJ LeMahieu or, or uh, keeper valuation or anything, but where do you stand on the whole Clayton Kershaw thing where I've read lots of arguments, including by people that both of us know and like and, and respect in the business who say that there's nothing wrong. Indeed, there's something to be recommended for taking Clayton Kershaw first overall or paying $48 for him or you know making these kind of enormous commitments to a guy who basically dominates two or three categories in the pitching in a way that most other players simply can't. The secret I'll let you in on is there's one guy I know I'm going to have in the head-to-head league, and it's Clayton Kershaw. He's the difference. He's the guy. There's no other pitcher who's like him. There's obviously risk in spending $48 or whatever it's going to take to get him, um, but I'm going to get him um, because number two isn't even close, especially with the, you know the questions about Scherzer. And so... So I'm on the, I'm on that side of it. I I think you have such an advantage taking Kershaw that um, it's going to make it harder to to put together a offense, but you can do it. There's there are guys all the way through the drafting process or on the auction block who are who are going to hit for you. You just have to pick the right ones. There's nothing wrong with picking Kershaw first. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio. Patrick Davitt with Peter Kreutzer. Tout Wars, AskRotoman.com, Patton & Co. And uh, Peter, also your AskRotoman.com site asked about uh, a guy who has the top pick overall in his uh, draft style draft. And uh, as luck would have it, Mike Trout is coming off a long-term contract. He's back in the pool, which means this guy's going to get Mike Trout if he wants him, which seems like a no-brainer, but there's a wrinkle. This league allows owners to trade their picks back and forth before the draft. So he asked you, he was wondering if he should entertain offers to trade the first pick, therefore Mike Trout, if he could get back, say, maybe a lower down still first round pick plus a second rounder or something like that. And of course the analysis requires knowing what other players are available in the free agent pool, what player might he get with the, with the lower first round pick. And he didn't mention any of that, but in general, what do you think uh, should be considered in making a decision like this? This goes to the error bars of projection. Like we can say, everybody says Mike Tr- Trout is the, is the first pick. He's the consensus first pick. Every ADP, says he's the first pick is he ranks like 1.2 or something. Very few people take anybody over Mike Trout um, in in a draft league. At the same time, we know that Mike Trout is not likely to be the top fantasy value this year. It's just um, I can't tell you how many times in the last five years he has been, but it's he he's number one because he's consistently very very good but he's not he's there's usually somebody who has a better season than he does and they would have been a better pick if he knew that they were going to play the way they did and some of them are in the first round and it gets complicated because if you take if you have the first pick and you take Mike Trout 
you then have the 24th pick or the 30th pick. And that balances out where you might be able to take somebody like Nolan Arenado with the fifth pick and also have the 25th pick. Um, that's what this is. That's what this question is about. And um, I think it, it, that it's, it's, it's like a football question. Football allows teams to trade picks and they do all sorts of crazy things that don't make any sense to me, but I'm not an expert in football. Um, talent is you're accumulating talent and that's really what um what you want to do in the tower wars mixed draft we give teams priority access to their draft slot and last year a lot of the teams that had early had first priority picked in the middle the late half of the first round the late half of the first half of the first round so the picks like five six seven um this year all those teams took the best pick they could, one, two, three, four, five, six. But a couple teams that were in the middle dropped to the fifth, 14th and 15th spot because they like having 15 and 16 rather than 11 and whatever it is, um, 20 or something. And um, it's, a, it's, it's an interesting question. You have to like figure out what your strategy is going to be. If, um, if you're not going to take Trout, then you really do want to have, if you want to, we'd rather have Altuve or Arenado or, um, you know, even someone like Carlos Correa, who is maybe an end of the first round type of guy this year. Um, you can work with that and, and improve your position in the second round by, by doing the trade. I, I mean, I kind of like, I like challenging people with these sorts of questions. Um, and making them come up with answers. I think that's a fun part of the game and getting ready for draft day. I remember the, the subject came up a few years ago in some discussions we were having uh, behind the scenes at BaseballHQ.com, and one of the guys did uh, a graph, I think it's fairly widely uh, known now, not just his graph, but other people's graphs, that the descent from the value of the first pick in a draft to the last pick in a draft is not linear. It falls off pretty sharply in the first round, and then it kind of flattens out a bit. And so I guess the question would be, if, you, if you're trading down for this guy in particular from Mike Trout to the fifth pick, it would, it would depend hugely on whether all the next guys, Goldschmidt and, and Nolan Arenado and, and Altuve and Mookie uh, uh, Betts, were concerned are all not in the pool because then all of a sudden that, that falloff becomes even steeper and makes it less likely that you're going to uh, want to move down because the Mike Trout plus whoever you get next is likelier to be a greater value than somebody who's really late first round kind plus uh, whatever you get value from having two second round picks. There's a lot of that kind of stuff going on in here. But in general, Peter, what do you think of leagues that allow trading the slots like this as part of the the pre-draft strategy? I like rules that allow transactions that create ways to make deals. I mean, I think that's a fun part of the game. And I, I like rules that are flexible to allow decisions to be made that might be out of the box, that are something that uh, that we sitting here can't talk about knowledgeably about somebody else's league because we don't know who's in the pool. And that is a crucial question in answering the question for any individual's particular situation. Right. So I'm in favor. Uh, that That's the main thing for me. Last week I was talking with our mutual friend Gene McCaffrey, and among other things, he said he liked the idea in an auction league that you could make deals during the auction. 
not in the middle of while a player was being auctioned at the table, but in the breaks between rounds. Uh, the first thing that popped into my mind was I wouldn't want to be running that, that particular auction because of the headaches of keeping track of what player has been moved. And especially if you allowed dollars to be traded as part of the transaction, could be a bookkeeping issue. But overall, if somebody could figure out a way to look after it um, efficiently, what do you think of that idea? Well, I, I think it's probably really impractical in a in a regular live auction where you're you know playing you're trying to get it done in four and a half hours or five hours or whatever. But um, but in a slower situation where you're um, taking the full day and you're and you take a lot of breaks and you have some um, chances to uh, stretch it out or over you know a few uh, there are leagues that do that have auctions that run a spreadsheet and you keep adding to your bids on the spreadsheet for a number of players at once, and um, there I could see plenty of formats where that would be a lot of fun, and it would be a chance to um, rearrange your strategy in midstream or build a strategy around the idea that you can um, take advantage of some things. I, 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 like, I love all that. I think that's great. I love it too, and I'd like to see more of that kind of thing. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt, with Peter Kreutzer from Tout Wars and AskRotoman.com. And Peter, you had a commentary at your AskRotoman.com website about tiering the positions, putting hitters and pitchers into tiers by value, and this technique is fairly widespread. I see a lot of it in drafting software products of various kinds. In general, what do you think is the strength of the tiering idea? What I was trying to do, and what I think it's very, very useful for, is proving your projected values. So I was looking at my price list that I had put together based on past history and projected value and um, what the market was showing. And I was trying to group players into sections of kind of built on reliability and value towards upside potential versus price. So the top tier of, of players would be, they're the gold standard. Those are the, the players everybody wants and that are they're going to cost more than you want to pay for them. They go, they're the first ones taken in, in the draft or at that position. Um, and, and then work down from there t- to see, essentially to find in the middle areas where you've got, everybody knows who the top tier is, but the, in the middle areas you want to find places where players are either going for too much and you drop them down to an appropriate tier given their um, their skills and their chance of um, crashing or breaking out or however you you judge them you want you want to have a sanity check on that and the tiers help you find like players who you'd be willing to substitute for each other even though you, they might have a you know a dollar or two difference in, in your on your draft sheet that you have there's a difference in real commitment that you have to them and putting them in tiers helps you uh, make those associations. I like the idea of tiering as I said the problem I've always had is where to start and end a particular tier. It sounds like you're being a little more fluid than most of the uh, draft software and even the grid system that Baseball HQ puts out which is uh, basically it's a it's a literally a grid where you have 40 plus 35 to 39 and so on down the list in $5 increments and then the positions are from top to bottom so you can look down the list and say oh there's a big clump of decent outfielders in that 10 to $15 box Therefore, I don't need to spend a lot on the $25 box. I'll let somebody else do that. I'm going to focus my $25 or $30 player on second base or whatever the shorter position is if I'm going to buy a $25 player at all. 
the problem I had is fixing the boundaries, as I said. So you got a $25 player who's in the second layer box and a $24 player's one, one box below him. But I wonder about making that distinction on the basis of a $1 difference, and especially since the $1 difference itself is the result of a process with a lot of error bar uh, problems built into it. Um, well, it is the it is the problem, but it is also the problem with actually having hard dollar limits on your on your players. If once you start to get some of those wrong, or not so much that you get them wrong, but that your league does something a little bit different, all those values um, shift a little bit. And trying to um, so staying fluid. One of the things that tiering the way you're describing it with big chunks of players in, in, a, in a box of value um, without individual values attached to them. One of the advantages of that is that it helps you stay fluid and not get stuck on, you know, I don't want to pay more than this guy I have the, this guy is a price for. Because there might be a time when it's, it's better to pay the extra dollar or two for a player than to um, let him go at, the, at that point in the auction. Um, so that's the value of tiering over dollar values, but I think dollar values are a way of monitoring the budget and discovering when something screwy is happening in the auction. If all the money is going off early, people are paying too much for the early players because there's a lot of money available, you can use that information to sit back and wait, and you know that there's going to be some bargains that are going to come that you're going to be quite happy with. Uh, what about tiering differently by position? A, a $22 catcher like Gary Sanchez, for example, could be the top tier of catchers, while a $22 outfielder like, I don't know, Lorenzo Cain or somebody would be third tier. And how does that affect how you manage which which guy you want more for your $22? I would say that in a, um, in a mixed league, in a fairly shallow, a 12 or 15 team mixed league, the equivalent... Um, tiers are roughly equivalent in price. Not that you would put Buster Posey in the in the first half of the first round of the auction, but he, he's going to go for more. He's going to go at the top of the let's say well, let's call it like the twenty six dollar level of of the um, of the draft. Sorry, uh, the players who are going there, he's going to go there um, at the top of it rather than at the bottom of it in a 12-team only league, NL only league, let's say, he's going to go at the bottom of the of those, those groups because he's valuable, but he's not as valuable as um, you know the outfielders that there are so many of them at that point. Um, I think is that answering your question. I, I'm not actually sure that that's the right answer, so um, feel free to have at it. <laughs> Well, I'm just wondering if if I'm sitting there at the at the draft table and I say, okay, um, Gary Sanchez, to stick with that example, is the best catcher on the board. That that's what my valuations or my determination has been. You can slot in Lou Croy or whoever you like in that in that position. If it's a mixed league, sure, go ahead and say, all right, we'll start at the top with uh, with Buster Posey. The names I don't think matter as much as the idea which is, uh, and I think you did answer it, do I need to, if I have a choice between Gary Sanchez or Lorenzo Cain and I have $22 and presuming I know I can spend $22 and get either guy, do I really want Gary Sanchez because he's the top tier guy at that price? Even if I think Lorenzo Cain might be a $23 player or, you know, um, if if the outfield were really thin in that box, those kind of questions really uh, confound me because I'd like to know if the position value is somehow um, 
should it, is properly factored in, I guess. The direct point I could make is position matters a bit in a in a shallow league and hardly at all in a in a only league. So um, you want to fill your you want to have good catchers, the catchers who stand out above the others in a mixed league. If you can, you know, you don't want to go crazy about it, like I said, but you want those you want to fill those positions with real players because. The bottom guys, even in a, if it's, you're only taking 24 of them in a, out of all of baseball, aren't nearly as good as the, as, um, the top ones. But in the only league, you're going to end up having to trade off. So um, the, you, don't, you really don't want to overspend for, the, for a catcher. You don't want to overdraft a catcher in an, in an only league because you're going to end up, you're going to end up taking the the worst outfielder then or something you know that that's the trade off you're going to be making and it might not be a, a good one you're um you're you're trying to balance that risk and cost factor um and and tiering doesn't solve that problem at all that's really a position scarcity problem i think when you look at it yeah, I thought so too. I've always thought that the good catcher would be more valuable in the only league format because of the marginal advantage. I'd rather have the 24th outfielder or the last outfielder than the last catcher because um, the last outfielder is usually not a negative value player and the last catcher in a single league format almost always is in true. I mean, I know most valuation systems say you've got to bump that last catcher up to a dollar because you can't pay minus one dollars. But in actual fact, he's a negative player. He's going to hit, you know, 199 or whatever and have two home runs and, and six RBIs and these these kind of terrible stats. If that's if that's way worse than the bottom outfielder, and it usually is, I think I'd I'd rather pay the extra to get just to not have to roster that terrible catcher. Uh, I'll I'll pay a little extra and I'll take the worst outfielder instead. Am I crazy about that? No, no. That, that's. I mean, that is a, an eternal question. Uh, there's another way to look at it, of course, which is that on in an only league on auction day, you're taking 168 hitters, and um, 24 of them will be catchers, and and the worst of those who will be very bad is going to cost a dollar. And if you built your team, I mean, if you built your league on auction day, and then you didn't change, you didn't have replacements, everybody would play with those, with their um, 23 hitters. And when you did retrospective values at the end of the year of what everybody earned, the last, the worst player would earn a dollar, right? Because you can't earn a negative if the pool is the is the whole thing. Well, you can. There's different ways of looking at this. If, but if I work from a replacement value position that the worst player is worth the worst available player um, who will be rostered is worth a dollar so um, in that sense the values are built off of that those bad catchers who will cost a dollar and will I'm using air quotes here will earn a dollar um, on the in the course of the season it's not totally true and um, because of being able to replace and reserve players and do things like that but it's um but from a theoretical standpoint, which I think does get at some real value issues in terms of position scarcity, um, it is it is a fundamental fact 
or an, or maybe it's a, an arguable fact of um, how the, how values are created, how player value is created. Yeah, it is a. It's a very interesting question, and it's really hard to get your head around. It's one of those questions. It seems to me that just as soon as you figure out that you think you got the answer, uh, somebody says, "But what about this?" And you have to go, "Yeah, that's right too." You know, so it's it may be an insoluble question. In fact, uh, I know from I've been playing around this business, uh, this business, and this game not as long as you, but both of us have been in it for a long time, and. And I remember first thinking about it back in the 90s when I started playing or the early 90s. It's 25 years later and we're still talking about it, which suggests that maybe it's it's not going to be the kind of question that ever really gets solved. Well, it, partly because it's, um, it, you know, it suffers from the, the uh, sort of the traveling salesman complexity uh, problem. It's, there's so many moving parts. And the available information is... It's very flexible. Who to roster, how, and then who actually does perform um, varies from year to year. Um, there, and we have enough examples, I think, to say that no single strategy works all the time. Um, we haven't. IBM hasn't, you know, stuck big blue on the on on this yet. Um, is that the name of that computer? What's yeah, the chess playing computer. Yeah, the chess playing computer, and the, now somebody there's a computer that just beat. Um, Texas Hold'em poker. They it, it can beat the best players consistently, and um, so we're nobody has sicked the computer on our game yet. But um, they will, and maybe they'll find a, a consistent path. But I think it's it's very hard to it, it, the the big factor is that the um, the randomness of the of performance and the and the inexactitude of the projections make it very hard to prove one way or another that um, this is the better way to go than that way. I think we can start with the best solid intellectual um, evaluation of what is happening and build off of that and um, try and come up with some ways to then beat other people who are doing exactly the same thing or trying to do exactly the same thing. Um, and, and, uh, and, and that is why we're talking about it 25 years later, because it's, it's, uh, it's going to go on and on. I suspect that there's been some uh, pretty significant computer power and some pretty um, powerful human minds at work on these kind of problems, and especially in the daily fantasy space, I think they are being applied. We, may, we just may not know about it because they keep it secret because they like winning lots of money. Uh, I think that the computers are already a problem in online poker playing for the very same reason. Uh, in your fourth tier of first baseman, you had a headline in the AskRotoman.com commentary and I quote, if they're solid, they're flawed, and if they're less flawed, they're flaky. What did you mean by that? Well, <laughs> um, it's, a, it's a funny um, group in that, in that tier. And um, so uh, there's Tommy Joseph, who seems to have a job and a power swing. This, is, this goes to the reliability issue, but he has a power swing that um, like the major league pitchers um, look like they're going to be able to exploit at some point. So he might hit a bunch of home runs quickly, and then he he could flame out just like Chris Carter, um, who won't flame out hitting home runs, but who you know the batting average can drop um, at any at any moment, and and he could conceivably you know not end up losing playing time um, at any time because because of the those holes. And then the other guy, another guy in that group is Lucas Duda, who isn't healthy this spring, and you know he may drop just because of um, the health issues. 
and um, and Josh Bell, who is a highly regarded prospect, um, a, a potential hit machine, um, but he doesn't have much power so far, and, and um, you know his best comp is James Loney, which is a who was a nice player for a fair amount of time, but um, that's not somebody to to say oh they're. He's not flaky. He's just not um, necessarily going to be a big producer, especially right off the bat. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio. Patrick Dav with Peter Kreutzer from Tout Wars, AskRotorMan.com. And Peter, I've been asking our guest experts uh, to give us some studs and duds for 2017, a stud hitter and a dud hitter, and ditto for pitchers in each league. Uh, let's maybe start with some studs. Uh, who do you think is a stud hitter for 2017 in the American League? The guy I'm touting um, in the American League is, uh, is and don't laugh, but it's uh, Ben Revere, who is even at his best is not a stud. But, um, but he's a guy who is coming off of a, a terrible year, um, kind of inexplicably terrible. But he's a, um, he's a solid fantasy player. He puts the bat on the ball generally. He he's usually has a high batting average. And, he, and he's fast. He steals bases and, and, and runs. Um, he's going for pennies this year because he's a fourth outfielder, and um, and you know he could not necessarily he could get not get a lot of at bats, um, and that would be a reason not to bid him up. But if he's cheap, he's a guy who could slot into become a regular outfielder who hits two ninety five and and steals thirty bases, and um, for your three or four dollars, that's a that's a nice player to have, or you know, and even in a Mixed league to have on reserve. Um, I think he's a great, a great guy. Baseball HQ is projecting 17 stolen bases and a batting average around 270, which isn't bad. A Revere went for nine dollars in the Labor AL only. Of course, the uh, prices are a little bit bumped in in AL only. Would you pay nine bucks for Ben Revere in an only format? I mean, I, I think that's a fair price for him. I would hope to get him for seven or something, um, but it, it really depends where he comes out in the draft and and um, you know how two people in the room feel. I, I could see him going for eleven, but and I wouldn't definitely wouldn't go there. If, in the right situation, I might pay nine, but I would rather pay seven. You know, that's that's sort of the uh, the range the the range where I would go with him. How about over in the National League? Who's a stud hitter for you this year? Well, the, the guy I liked, who I thought might be overlooked, but hasn't been overlooked at all, who is um, Keon Broxton. Um, he's going for real solid dough, and for a good reason. He's he had a great run last year um power and speed um he has real contact issues which is why i thought he might be uh he might be eschewed a little um but he also he's a he takes a lot of walks he gets on base even if he's not um putting the ball in play all the time and he's he's a you know exciting young dynamic player um so i like him you could clearly pay too much for him i think he's been going about I think he went for 17 or something in labor, and um, and that's more than I would like to pay for him. But I don't think I think you could pay that and and be very happy. Yeah, he's a $15 projected player at Baseball HQ on the strength of 35 bags and 14 home runs. A little bit of a batting average problem, and but you got to like that Milwaukee team for steals because everybody on that team seems to run, and their organizational philosophy seems to be the more the better as far as running goes. Uh, over to the pitchers in the American League. Who's a stud pitcher you've got your eye on for 2017? Well, I, I think I say this every year, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go with Drew Smiley again as a guy who um, has – a ton of potential. He moves to a better ballpark, perhaps, and um, 
and I just think at some point he's going to put it together and and uh, is going to have a, a very, very big year, and you want to be there when he does. And in the National League, a stud pitcher that you've got your eye on as well? The guy in the National League is, a, is sort of the opposite of Smiley, and that's um, Johnny Cueto, who is almost always very good and um, and who um, is almost always undervalued because, uh, you know, his advanced, advanced uh, metrics, like, never support just how effective he is from year to year. So um, I, I think he's the guy who's overlooked almost every year, and um, when you're looking for an ace, he's a guy isn't going to be the highest strikeout guy, but he's a really solid um, guy in a, in a great ballpark on a, a team that's always um, productive. I, I, you know, I, I like him this year as a guy that you might target. Peter Kreutzer, studs, Ben Revere of the Angels, Keon Broxton of the Milwaukee Brewers, on the hill, Drew Smiley, now of Seattle, and Johnny Cueto of the San Francisco Giants. Moving along to your duds, Peter, who's an American League hitter you think might be a dud for 17? Manny Machado is the guy who is going in. He went for like $40 or something in labor, and um, and I just don't see it. I, I love him. He's a great hitter, but he's in a position on that team where uh, this year, as last year, he's just not going to steal any bases. And I mean, he might steal, he's probably going to steal more than z- the zero he did last year, but it's that isn't going to be a significant part of his game. And um, if he's not stealing bases and he's not hitting 50 home runs, he's not a $40 player. So um, I don't think you can count on him hitting 50 home runs. Maybe he'll hit 40, and that could make him a you know low 30s type of slugger. Um, that's a great player to have, especially at shortstop and, and uh, third base. But uh, I think he's being overdrafted just because um, he's, he's because of his age, because of what he's done in the past, and um, the hope that those steals are coming back. Yeah, I think a lot of uh, drafters are also looking at the two-position eligibility. They like that aspect of it, and certainly that uh, adds some value to him. But uh, Baseball HQ has him projected for five stolen bases, and I think that might be generous between the fact that he's had some knee issues in the past and he's a big guy, not getting any younger, and Baltimore, I think that they had like the by far the fewest stolen base attempts in all of baseball last year. The, the, their leader was... Um, four stolen bases or something like that. It's hard to see Machado or anybody on the Orioles really all of a sudden starting to steal bases when the organization seems to just think that it's a bad idea. Well, he, he was caught three times la- early last year, before May, and he, and he didn't try to steal a base again after that. And he said it was because he's sitting in front of Chris Davis and Mark Trumbo, guys who, um, you know, aren't going to single. <laughs> They're going to the extra base he steals is, isn't going to improve his chances of scoring it very much. So um, I think that's the dynamic. I think the Orioles last year, as a as a team, stole thirty five bases or something. Um, that by far the least. They dumped steals basically. The the Orioles did. Um, so that makes Machado. That very much limits his. Um, his his fantasy value still a great player and uh, the other point about um the shortstop eligibility is you'd like to have that but shortstop and and middle infield are are you know really quite stacked coming into this year so it it helps it's definitely a good thing to have but um there's not a huge incremental value in in having a shortstop versus having a third baseman I think it was Joy Rickard who had the uh the four stolen bases to lead the club who's a dud hitter in the National League 
Well, so I I have Ian Desmond here. I we he's hurt now, and um, it, we don't. Or, he's supposed to be back, I think, at the end of April. But he's coming. He'll be coming off a hand injury. I th- thought he was hugely overrated going to um, cores anyway, and. Um, I, maybe because of the injury, his price will fall enough that he's he's worth taking a shot on. But um, hand, you know, power hitters with hand injuries coming back um, are are risky intrinsically. So I I would say he was overvalued. He was overvalued before he got hurt. That overvaluing may continue even when the injury is factored in. And I would I would stay away from him unless the price drops quite a bit. One other thing about Desmond, he's a, a guy that, like we were talking before, is coming off of a kind of a career year. He, he had great years in Washington, but um, he had that terrible year, and then he bounced back and had a great, great year. That makes it easy to overvalue him, especially with the, the park change, not, the injury notwithstanding. So uh, that's a reason to keep an, an eye out there. Yeah, I would expect the price of Ian Desmond to drop pretty much in, in accordance with a, a month of missed time, but everybody's going to stick with the general uh, ratios they expect him to produce in terms of home runs per at-bat and, and those kind of things, and they're just going to reduce the at-bat count. But I think they might be, as you said, I think the rates themselves might be wrong. That People are putting a lot of emphasis on this Colorado business, and I know it matters, but gosh, uh, Ian Desmond's profile doesn't quite look like that kind of value uh, in the American League. Who's a dud pitcher for you? Well, the the guy that I I think um, isn't necessarily a dud, but who's being way over over um, drafted and over auction priced is Hugh Darvish, who um, is coming back from Tommy John and um, you know has showed some signs of health last year, but hasn't proven his durability and hasn't proven that he's all the way back and can keep it up for the whole season. And he's being drafted as, as if he's Madison Bumgarner or something. And that's just not, that's too high a level for um, somebody with his recent history. Yeah. Uh, when you talk about you, Darvish, I think people are underestimating the risk. I know that they have the, the surgery recovery and you always end up stronger and all that kind of thing. But you're right. You Darvish just hasn't proved that he can get that, uh, you know, 225 innings in or 36 starts or whatever it is. I'd be very leery. He went for $30 in uh, the American League labor draft. Uh, that seems very high and very risky to me. Uh, who's uh, finally a dud pitcher for you in the National? Um, in the National League, I've, it's kind of the opposite story. Um, John Lester has been, you know, a consistent and productive pitcher um, at, at a high level last year for sure. And he's being paid that way, even though in overall his his uh, production is is not as, as high as it was last year. And I think he's going to come back to earth a little bit. And at the prices he's being paid, that's going to lead to um, some little losses. And and there's the potential that if there's a, there's a lot of risk there for bigger losses um, with Lester. So it's that's not a knock on him. It's not a prediction that he's going to be terrible this year. It's just that. I think he's being, um, there's some irrational exuberance in the prices being paid for him, and uh, he should be ramped back a little bit. Peter Kreutzer's duds, his dud hitter in the American League, Manny Machado, in the National League, Ian Desmond, in the American League, his dud pitcher, Hugh Darvish of Texas, and in the National League, John Lester of the Cubs. Uh, Peter, as we wrap this up, uh, fill us in again quickly on what's going on this Tote Wars weekend. Well, we've got the um, head-to-head auction tonight at uh, 7 o'clock. The location is Rockin' Riley's in the Renaissance Hotel. 
It's on 35th Street, um, just west of 7th Avenue. Uh, it's a beautiful space. The head-to-head league will be uh, auctioning tonight. There'll be live coverage on the radio on uh, the Fantasy Sports Network and uh, and then taped coverage, which will be put on sometime on Saturday night, um, after, I guess after the um, mixed auction is done um, of the head-to-head league. Then um, on Saturday morning at 9 o'clock is the AL League, which has, uh, you know, all those famous people like Patrick David playing in it. Um, you, you can come down. The, the um, bar and restaurant is open for breakfast. Come watch um, these guys, these great fantasy players, uh, auction and, um, and table talk and all the, all the stuff that makes the game so much fun. Um, and then uh, Saturday afternoon at 3 o'clock, will be the mixed auction, um, also at Rocket Riley's, also on 35th Street West of 7th Avenue in the Renaissance Hotel. And then finally, on Sunday morning at 10 o'clock, we've got the NL draft, which uh, NL auction, which will, uh, just as with the uh, both Saturday auctions, will be on uh, the Fantasy Sports Network and Sirius XM. Um, and uh, it starts at 10 o'clock on Sunday morning. And finally... Uh, we have the party that we have every every year on Tau Weekend on Saturday night at Foley's, um, which is a great Irish baseball bar, if such a thing existed, um, on at 18 West 33rd Street, um, right across the street from the Empire State Building. And um, you're welcome to come by and join us. Um, all many of the of the touts will be there, and um, you can get a sandwich named after. Uh, you can eat sandwiches named after some of last year's winners. Uh, Patrick, do you want to talk about your sandwich for winning Tout Daily last year? Well, in honor of uh, winning a DFS event, I decided to uh, go with the uh, hot turkey sandwich, which is delicious. I've had it there before, but I'm renaming it the Davit Fowl Sandwich. DFS for DFS. Perfect. So it's a lot of fun, and if you can come by, you should. It will be a lot of fun. I'm always looking forward to seeing everyone. I especially hope to see some fans out this year. We see some every year at Foley's, but with the new open format at the uh, Rock and Riley's in the Renaissance Hotel on 35th, another chance for you to participate. If you come in and if you're a Baseball HQ Radio listener on Saturday morning, I'll be drafting in the American League, and it's uh, I'm probably the least highly regarded player in there. Larry Schechter plays, Wolf and Colton play as a team, uh, Mike Podhorse is a past winner of several experts drafts. It's a really top quality draft. Jeff Erickson's in the draft. Uh, so it, it, please come and say hello. If you're a Baseball HQ Radio listener, find me. I'll probably be wearing a baseball shirt of some kind. Not that that's going to make me stand out, but uh, I'd, appreciate, I'd appreciate it if you could come and say hi. Peter, I'd also appreciate very much you taking the time here today. I know you've been very busy setting up Tau Wars and doing all the administrative work, so thanks a lot for that, and thanks a lot for being on the show. Thank you for having me, Patrick. It's always a great fun. Peter Kreutzer is a Hall of Fame fantasy baseball writer at AskRotoMan.com, the editor-in-chief of the annual Fantasy Baseball Guide magazine, and the primary organizer of Tout Wars Weekend. Our Baseball HQ commentaries are next. Stay with us on Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Ray Murphy, and I'd like to take a minute to explain why we call BaseballHQ.com the best fantasy baseball website in the business. It's because BaseballHQ.com is ready to set you up for success in your drafts with great information across all the major fantasy formats. Get ready for your draft or auction now with news analysis, prospect coverage, and player performance validation. 
and use our valuation tools and cheat sheets so you don't just get ready. You feel ready and confident that you'll dominate your competition at the draft table. Here's PD with a look at just a little of what's on BaseballHQ.com right now. In playing time tomorrow, Greg Pyron's National League East covers looks at Adam Eaton, the Mets rotation, the Phillies bullpen, and much more. In facts and flukes performance validation, Dave Adler looks at Jose Bautista, Hugh Darvish, and other players. And in our first The Eyes Have It scouting column of the new season, Chris Blessing reports his personal impressions of college right-hander J.B. Bukaskis and high school southpaw Jacob Heatherly. And that's just some of the great content at BaseballHQ.com. We're adding 30 articles every week to help keep you on top of your game. If you want to invest in your fantasy baseball success, we have a couple of options for you. The full year subscription to Baseball HQ is currently $75, which includes all the articles and tools, plus membership in our HQ forums, the message boards where serious fantasy baseball players like you gather to exchange ideas and tips. We also have a draft prep subscription option with all the same privileges through April 30th for just $39. And if you enter the promo code HQRADIO at checkout, we'll knock a five spot off the price just to thank you for listening to Baseball HQ Radio. Come join us at the website with fantasy baseball intelligence for winners. It's BaseballHQ.com. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. It's now time for our regular HQ Radio commentaries. Coming up, we have Master Notes, and leading off, it's the Minor League Minute. And here with a report on Cincinnati left-hander Amir Garrett is BaseballHQ.com Minor Leagues analyst Rob Gordon. We still have two weeks left to go in spring training, and the Cincinnati Reds' starting rotation is already a mess. The often-injured Homer Bailey is on the 60-day DL, and staff ace Anthony DiScalfani is out at least four weeks with a UCL sprain, leaving two spots open at the back end of the rotation. One player to keep an eye on is Reds' hard-throwing prospect Amir Garrett. The 6'5 lefty has a plus 92-95 mile-an-hour fastball, a good slider, and a fringe average changeup that shows potential. In 2016, Garrett cruised through double and triple A, going 7-8 with a 2.25 ERA. He had 59 walks and 132 strikeouts and limited opposing batters to a nifty 192 batting average against in 144 and two-thirds innings. Garrett played basketball in college at St. John's and is a plus athlete who is still learning how to pitch. He's had an excellent spring training, posting a 2.20 ERA in 16 and a third innings, and is getting serious consideration for the fifth spot in the Reds' rotation. Amir Garrett is certainly fantasy-worthy in deep NL-only formats, and has the potential to develop into a solid mid-rotation starter. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Baseball HQ Minor League Analyst Rob Gordon. Another way BaseballHQ.com subscribers get the winner's edge is with comprehensive coverage of the minor leagues. In the preseason and all season, the BaseballHQ.com scouting team has reports and updates on the top prospects, organization moves, daily call-ups, and everything you need to keep tabs on rising stars. If you need to know your prospects to stay competitive in your league, BaseballHQ.com has you covered. Now it's time for Master Notes, my weekly discussion about baseball and fantasy baseball. This week I want to talk about pitchers and their pro outcomes. Last week in this space, I debuted a new player evaluation system that I called PRO, P-R-O, which stood for Positive Relative Outcomes. I say stood in the past tense because I'm changing the name. 
positive relative outcome seemed a little vague, and somehow that word relative made me think of my in-laws, and there's not much positive going on there, believe you me. So PRO now stands for Percentage Ratio Outcome. Gets my mother-in-law out of my mind, and it's more descriptive. The metric calculates the percentages of positive and negative outcomes per plate appearance for batters and per batter faced for pitchers. This week we are looking at the pitchers. I looked for pitchers who had good pro trends over the last three seasons from 2014 through 16. The playing time requirement was that a pitcher had to face 100 batters in each of the three seasons and must have had at least one start to qualify as a starter in 2016. That left 133 starters for the review. Once again, targets were starters whose pro grew from 2014 to 15 and then grew again in 2016. As a reminder, pitchers' positive outcomes are soft and medium-hit grounders and fly balls, infield pop-ups, and strikeouts. Negative outcomes for pitchers, hard-hit grounders and fly balls, all line drives, as well as walks and hit-by-pitches. The median score for good outcomes among starting pitchers around 63%. Elite scores start at around 67%, bottom scores around 58% and below. In 2016, Clayton Kershaw has good outcomes in 74% of his batters faced. The median score for bad outcomes is around 38%. Elite pitchers score down in the low to mid-30s, and the worst pitchers up around 41% or sometimes even higher. And just for the record, Kershaw was at 28% bad outcomes in 2016. To complete the study, there's one extra step. I subtract the percentage of bad outcomes from the percentage of good outcomes, and that's what pro is. To set a level, by the way, the top quintile of starting pitcher pro trends in 2016 was plus 29% or higher. And the best was, no M. Night Shyamalan surprise twist here, Clayton Kershaw at plus 46%, which is frigging amazing if you're keeping score at home. At the same time, I checked for pitchers who had declined year over year over year, and again to set a level, the 2016 bottom quintile was plus 16% or lower. The worst starting pitcher was Eric Johnson, who had six stats for the Padres and managed a measly plus 3%. Memo to self, don't draft Eric Johnson. As with the hitters, more than two-thirds of starters didn't show trends in either direction. That said, the test found 12 starters who improved their pro each season, including C.C. Sabathia, who had a bit of a comeback season in 2016, earning $7 in standard 5x5 after two previous seasons as a money loser. Sabathia has never been a special K guy, with only one season above nine strikeouts per nine, and his dom is still nothing special, around seven and a half. His strikeout percentage, of course, hasn't moved a lot either, but from 2014 to 16, Sabathia upped his soft grounders by four points, to an elite 10%. At the same time, he was cutting his line drive percentage by another four points to 12%, well better than game average. Overall, he was at 32% positive in 2016, up from 29% the year before, which was up from 22% the year before that. That's moving in the right direction. Detroit right-hander Jordan Zimmerman could be one of those last year's bum candidates who go for a few beans because drafters just can't forget his 2016 stinkaroo and a poor spring training game this year against Toronto. But Zimmerman had a couple of decent early exhibition outings as well, and he has declared that the injury to a nerve in his neck has not been a problem for him this year. 
Zimmerman's strikeouts were way down last year, but he still managed to log a plus 3% pro on the strength of improvements in five of the nine categories. A small investment this year could have big payoffs. Even if Zimmerman only returns to the $13 guy he was in 2015. But he could bounce back all the way to 2013, 2014, and that could be the kind of huge profit that wins leagues. The starter who led all his peers in pro percent growth from 2014 to 16 was Miami right hander David Phelps. Phelps boosted his good outcomes from just 58% in 2014, among the worst in the game that year, to 68% in 2016, which was among the best scores. At the same time, he cut his bad outings from 43% in 2014, again among baseball's worst, to 32%, again among the best. The resulting 36% pro and the accompanying 21-point improvement should be at least worth a note on your cheat sheet. And what does Kyle Hendricks have to do to get some tout love? Seems like a lot of experts are warning fantasy writers to be cautious about Hendricks. But he's bumped up his good outcomes by three points and cut his bad by two, a five-point gain in his pro. In fact, Hendricks is elite in all three aspects of pro. Honorable mentions among starters go to possible profit sources like Shane Green, Rick Porcello, Christian Friedrich, Miguel Gonzalez, James Paxton, Irvin Santana, and Josh Colmenter. Don't take any of these guys based on this alone. Use it to tweak your results of your own thinking. Other honorable mentions go to starters who were in the elite of pro percent in 2016, although they might not have had the steady growth to qualify as winners for the survey. Those starters include Scott Feldman, Taiwan Walker, Johnny Cueto, Kershaw, of course, Steven Strasburg, Drew Smiley, John Lester, Corey Kluber, Madison Bumgarner, Drew Pomerantz, who's come up a little lame, so be careful about that, Justin Verlander, Max Scherzer, also a little lame, and Jake Arrieta. Arietta is particularly interesting in that he is still elite in both good and bad outcomes, but he's been going in the wrong directions on both. And a special case can be made for Juan Nicasio of Pittsburgh, the latest reclamation project of pitching coach Ray Searage. If 2016 is anything to go by, Nicasio could make a decent endgame target. He was starting in Pittsburgh for the first part of the year and was decent until some family issues seemed to derail him. After some time away from the team, Nicasio returned and pitched exclusively in relief, where his two-pitch fastball slider repertoire was much more effective. He won five games and lost only one. He had a 2.96 ERA. His 124 whip wasn't that great, but it was partly the result of a 36% hit rate. He sported a dom of 12.9 strikeouts per nine. His command was four strikeouts for every walk and he only gave up home runs at a half a game clip. His pro stats showed a five-point gain in good outcomes, led by strikeouts, and a three-point overall drop in bad outcomes, especially hard-hit fly balls, which might be a promising sign for a pitcher like Nicasio, who has historically had trouble with home runs per fly ball. Nicasio's plus 9% pro growth was elite, in the top 15% of all starters, in fact, but it was colored by his greater success as a reliever. As I said, Nicasio is unlikely to be a starter for the Pirates this year, and in fact, manager Clint Hurdle has said Nicasio will pitch from the bullpen, but in higher leverage situations. Could mean more vulture wins, maybe even a shot at closing. His success as a reliever last year might make him a very dark horse candidate in an underwhelming Pittsburgh bullpen. 
On the downside of the study, the test identified 33 pitchers whose pro percent declined in 2015 from 2014 and then again declined in 2016. Here are some prominent players whose pro trends were continuously downward. Sonny Gray fell from 35 to 21%. Chris Sale from 42 to 28%. Be careful. Dallas Koichel's down from 43% to 29%. Jacob deGrom from 36 to 24%. Zach Grenke from 38 to 27%. And Cole Hamels from 32 to 24 Remember again, this sort of analysis is not meant to replace your standard work in pitcher assessment and valuation. But you might want to add it to your toolkit to break some ties or to tweak those values at the last minute. There are a couple of PDF tables of this work, starting pitchers and relievers separately, at BaseballHQ.com. Go to the site and click on this edition of Master Notes under Free Articles. And may I say, my articles are worth every penny. There are links to download the tables at the end of the article. Or send us an email at bhqradio, all one word, at gmail.com, and put the word pictures in the subject line, and I'll send those tables right out to you. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Patrick Davitt, Master Notes columnist at baseballhq.com. You can get Master Notes delivered to your email inbox every Friday as part of the weekly free Fantasy Friday e-newsletter. Just go to baseballhq.com and sign up. Of course, we also have Master Notes here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, March the 24th. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 9 of the 2017 Fantasy Baseball season. I also want to thank our guest for this Friday edition of our show, Peter Kreutzer. Roto Man is a great guy, a Hall of Fame fantasy writer, and he does a terrific job organizing Tout Wars Weekend. I also want to thank our regular commentators from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our Market Watch commentators were Harold Nichols and Ryan Bloomfield. Our Minor League Minute analyst was Rob Gordon. And I'm Patrick Davitt, Master Notes commentator and the host of Baseball HQ Radio. If you happen to be in the New York area this weekend and you have some free time on Saturday or Sunday, come on down and watch the Tout Wars draft at Rockin' Riley's. It's a sports bar in the Renaissance Hotel on 35th just west of 7th Avenue in Manhattan. And what else are you going to do on a Saturday in New York? If you can't make it, even if you can, I always hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. Remember, you can also stay in contact with Baseball HQ on Facebook, and we have a Twitter feed at BaseballHQ. You can also subscribe to my personal Twitter feed at Patrick Davitt, and please feel free to send us a message on our email address, bhqradio, all one word, at gmail.com, where you'll always be the first to know when a new podcast is available. More importantly, please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio, and take a second to go to iTunes and add to our 4.8 star rating. It'll make you feel good about yourself, and it really does help us keep the podcast going. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again on Tuesday when our featured Tuesday Tout guest expert will be Joe Sheehan from the Joe Sheehan Baseball Newsletter and Sports Illustrated. That'll be the next edition of the podcast with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for Winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. Talk to you Tuesday. So long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. 
The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individuals speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.